Welcome to the Barnaby Cecil NHS Pensions Podcast. I'm Tom Skinner, Founder and Managing Director of Barnaby Cecil, a financial planning firm working with NHS members in the UK. I'm Emma Walker, also co-founder and main research analyst at Barnaby Cecil. This podcast is designed to address the complexities of the NHS pension scheme and to help members feel clearer about their options before retirement and beyond. Each quarter, we'll record an episode based on the questions you've asked us. If you'd like your question answered, please tweet us at Barnaby Cecil FP or email us at hello at barnabycecil.com. Hello, just me today, Tom. And the reason for recording this podcast was a tweet on Thursday, Thursday the 19th, it's the 20th today. And it's not a question that uh, is unusual. I think it's a question that gets posed more often. And uh, we had two emails, two inquiries in the last couple of weeks from people asking exactly the same thing. And the question posed by this person on Twitter was, what are your thoughts on opting out the NHS pension scheme? And this generated a, a thread with uh, various medics and pension scheme actuaries and financial advisors all discussing it. Uh, and so I thought uh, I would jump on and add, add a bit more to the discussion. And also not everyone's on Twitter. So um, to sort of provide and exchange some of the information to hopefully a slightly wider audience. So what's the background to a question? I think there's a couple of reasons why somebody might ask that. And I think it's a perfectly sensible question to ask. The first is that if you're a member of, of any form of pension scheme, you're likely to see at the end of the month, three, four, five hundred pounds maybe coming off your pay. And there's an element of trust in that, that you will receive a pension in the first place and an element of hope that when you do receive that pension, the the amount that you receive will be sufficient enough to sustain you in retirement. And when the scheme's as complex as the NHS pension scheme is, there's a lot of trust and a lot of hope in there because it's quite difficult to calculate as an individual what the return on that payment of three, four, five, six hundred pounds a month is paid into the pension scheme. And even so, the you're asking the individual to make sacrifices now, not going on holiday maybe not living in a in a bigger property in a, a million and one thing, uh, reasons to not invest in the pension now distractions and, and things that we might want and need for a future self and a benefit maybe two three four decades in advance and so that's quite a big ask when there's so little provided by many pension schemes in terms of what the individual would receive so there's a, an element of blind faith so it's not unusual that somebody would ask that question and of course we are all great self persuaders and so if there's a reason for us not to pay into a pension scheme we'll line it up almost certainly with a with a reason to do so i mean somebody said to me once you know i I don't trust the government and therefore i don't trust them with my money with my savings so let's start quickly then we're just discussing what the point of a pension is the idea behind a, a pension is that you exchange your economic worth throughout your working life for a regular income at a time where, and such are the facts of life, your alacrity towards work or your ability to perform mentally has, has declined. And therefore, you need something to show when your productivity or your economic worth is at its highest in exchange for that. And without that, you're relying either on others or the state to support you. So pension planning or pension or planning for retirement is 
fundamentally to give somebody the yeah the financial independence to be self-reliant at a point where they either neither want to or can continue to work. Now the reasons why somebody might not want to pay into pension, you know, could be quite diverse. They, as mentioned before, there may be things that they want to pay for now, and they may or there may be reasons why they think that it's unlikely in, in the future that they will need a pension or need a pension in the same way as others, perhaps life expectancy, for example. But one of the problems if you opt out of the NHS pension, and if you compare it to the situation in the private sector, is can you create a plan B that is comparable to the, the pension scheme that you're being offered? And in here lies the, the, the problem. In the private sector, a reasonable or generous pension contribution somebody saving towards their retirement would be between 15 and 20% of their salary. And in doing so, they would build up a capital that they would then draw on and deplete during their, their working life. So first of all, one of the strengths of the NHS pension is that there is no working capital. It's a, a promise and a guarantee to pay you a fixed level of income. So in one sense, although the calculation of an NHS pension is complex, there's a massive amount in there that then isn't, doesn't need to be calculated because you don't have a variable set of returns in terms of the growth rate of the pension, the growth rate of the individual's income or the individual's likely income in the future is much less predictable than somebody working in the public sector in general. But there's no possibility of the scheme running out realistically in a UK public sector scheme. And therefore, it's far more simpler because the day you retire, there's an income, an amount paid into your account every month until the end of your days. But the key thing with a, a private sector pension is that there's an employer contribution paid in. So if you're paying, say, 5% into your scheme, that's what the scheme takes, and the employer pays 10%, then that's 15%. And that's probably a, a sort of a base level of funding. You might have a matching scheme where if you increase to 8%, then the employer will increase to let's say 12% and then there's 20% going in, into the scheme. If you opt out of the of the NHS pension scheme, it's very, very unlikely that the employer will then pay back into your pay. There are some senior consultants who receive their pension payments back, but it's not every trust. It's very specific to the individual trust and the decision they've made around that. And the reason they've done that is because they've reached a level of pension at a point in time where they're being taxed heavily. And so some are then being dissuaded to work and taking the view, well, I may as well retire. And others, another trust are just taking the pragmatic view that well, we have this money for their pension and therefore we may as well allocate it and let them have it as, as taxable income. But many trusts are not offering that to their senior consultants. And because of the concern of people on lower incomes then being offered what would be perceived as an incentive for them to leave the scheme, you know, if you had a lot of debt, it would be very understandable. For example, if you then were encouraged or persuaded to leave the scheme for the moment to be out. So there's sort of moral and ethical reasons to not offer somebody a cash incentive if they do opt out. But that aside, there's then a massive hurdle to overcome in that you're having to then save separately your own capital at a massive disadvantage. Now, if your plan is the next two or three years to leave the NHS and work in the private sector, then fine. If your intention is to stay in, in the UK pension scheme until retirement then it's going to come at a massive disadvantage because you're going to have to make up the 20% pay yourself in your own entirety so unless you're working significantly outside of the NHS in the private sector and shoveling that that money into pension as well it's just going to be insurmountable to get anywhere near what the NHS would have provided 
a counter to that might be someone who says, yeah, but my intention, well, I'm not sure what my intention is, it, but it might be to, to not work in the UK. I might go and work in Australia or India or Pakistan or absolutely anywhere in the world. And therefore, what's the point of me paying into the pension? Well, the pension will pay into a bank account, any bank account of your choice anywhere in the world. And depending on the taxation treatment of pensions where, where you then reside, most countries have a double taxation treaty, so you'll only pay tax on the on the amount that you receive. So you're still banking. If you, Let's say you're 24 now and, and you think and there's a possibility by 30 you may have decided to work somewhere else in the world. Well, you're still banking then for seven years' worth of uh, guaranteed income at some point in the future that will undoubtedly assist you in that lifelong quest to create financial independence and freedom is only going to be going to assist you by having some form of guaranteed income and mean that then you can be maybe more aggressive with other forms of investment because you know you've got that backstop behind you so it's always going to going to assist you at some point in the future even if you think it likely that, that you'll leave the uk before 2015 you could take that pension with you and transfer it into a monetary amount but that's no longer an option but yeah, that, that point still stands is that it's still very, very useful to retain that income as part of your overall plan. So in terms of alternatives to opting out, then you've broadly got two. And, and this the point these are made is that, that they may still have a, a, an overall part to play in your financial plan. And the two forms of sort of, in inverted commas, passive income would be property, either residential or, or commercial, and capital markets, so the equity markets of the world. If we start with property, one of the issues with property is that you need significant amounts of money capital initially to get started. So you can't put £200 a month towards you know, a residential property purchase because you've got to bring the cash forward to even bring a, borrow a mortgage in the, in the first place. You also have to look at the sort of regulatory squeeze on certainly residential property and that it's getting harder to make money in property from a regulatory perspective because of the, the costs of doing so and the taxation, ignoring the fact that now this is a very, very saturated asset class. And if you're looking at historical returns and project them in the future, you might question whether if unless income levels rapidly increase over the next two decades, whether they can support the ever-increasing growth in, in property. And if they can't, then your, you know, your, your capital plan won't work. So there's there's issues with property, but capital markets do offer you the ability to for fifty pounds a month begin a savings plan, and then your money is invested, and companies throughout the world and throughout time have uh, ever sought to increase their market share to increase profit by reducing their overall costs, and because of people globally following the same pattern of taking their so they have economic worth during their working life and putting it into the markets. Therefore, there's an ever ongoing supply of, of people paying into you know a savings scheme in itself. That's why historically capital markets have always risen. And that can be used to create more flexibility um, because for every strength of a guaranteed income in retirement from the NHS pension or the state pension, and, it, and then every weakness, they can be countered by having a capital sum alongside those two saved, giving you the sort of flexibility and choice to uh, mitigate the fact that you've got a guaranteed income at a fixed point in time. Whereas if you've got a capital saved, then you've got a flexible amount of variable income that you can access at any point in time, assuming that whatever you've saved, chosen to save into, allows you to do. From a financial planning perspective and how a financial planner professionally would look at this, 
whoever was saving into a pension, the first thing they'd encourage the individual to do would be to look at their essential expenditure. And this can help frame decisions as to whether somebody should opt in or opt out or make any decision in terms of their future. So you look at your essential expenditure each month and then you look at your discretionary expenditure. So these are the things that you that uh, make up your sort of leisure activities and, and that sort of stuff. And then it might be sensible for uh, a medical or anyone, you know, any professional in the public sector to then add a little bit of inflationary, uh, lifestyle inflationary increase in that. So if you look at yourself at 35 and you look at your lifestyle now, is it likely to be the same at 45? And if it is, then your uh, essential and discretionary expenditure will hold true. But if you think that possibly that you might be living a slightly more affluent life in 10 years, and that's not uncommon within your professional, then you need to sort of bake that into the calculation as well. And and ultimately, you'll then end up with a figure. And it is a very helpful starting point to wish to attain 50% of that figure. So let's say that figure is £2,500 per month, that uh, is 50% of your essential and discretionary spend. So now that you know that your number, you've got your financial freedom number in mind, you then need to look at what does the NHS contribute towards this figure and when. So it might be that you hit £2,500 a month. And again, you have to then bounce back and forth with real and absolute terms. So the absolute figure you receive in retirement will feel like a, a much bigger number, but the the figure today will, will be the, the real term. So £2,500 might need to be £4,000 when you retire. But let's just keep the numbers in real terms today at £2,500 is the amount that, that grants you financial freedom. You may find that you hit that figure at 68 when you pay into the NHS pension. And the next question then is whether you're willing to work until 68 till you reach that figure. And if you're not, what figure or what age are you willing to work to? And you might find that you reach, in real terms, £2,000 a month at 64, leaving you a shortfall of £500. So now you know that you've got £500 a month, £6,000 a year as your shortfall to meet your ideal financial freedom number at your specific point in time and you know what the nhs and the state pension will contribute to that maybe they contribute all of it and you're happy to work until the normal retirement date of your scheme but maybe you fall short and you want to either access it at that point but you want to um, have some capital to draw down between then or you're going to retire and access your benefits slightly earlier and supplement it with money that you've saved alongside that the next thing you need to do then is to work out what capital you need to have saved to achieve that level of, of income. So let's say the the income again is £6,000 a year. It, wouldn't, it might not be unreasonable if you were retiring today to say, well, if I had £120,000 of income, I could draw £6,000 for 90% of my retirement. Let's say that, would, that wouldn't be unreasonable and therefore that takes you through to maybe 90. That's perfectly suitable for your plan. Obviously, these figures will then change if uh, you're much younger because the £6,000 will have to be in inflation, so you'll have a higher capital amount. But that's the kind of way to work out what that capital needs to be. Now you know your capital, you can then work out how much you need to save per year at what rate in order to achieve that and break it down and reverse engineer it all the way back down to where you are today. And in terms of the investment rate that you will use, that will depend on the level of risk that you're willing to take but it's likely to be somewhere between four and maybe eight percent per annum depending as i said on the level of risk that you're prepared to take and how much volatility 
on an ongoing basis, on a day-to-day basis that you are yeah, willing to, to accept. But coming from uh, yeah, a professional vantage point, I now have clients that I've been working with for 15 years and they are attaining growth rates of, as I said, between 4 and 8% year on year. And so it can be done uh, and it requires a plan and discipline, but those numbers are there, they're available and they can be used in your planning or you can work with an advisor who, who will tell you which percentage is most likely for the level of risk that you're willing to take and then that will then dictate how much you need to save in order to achieve the yeah, the capital sum required. And then finally, you need to think about, well, what other objectives do I have between now and retirement, things that I want to achieve? So they then need to be incorporated into that overall overarching decision in terms of, of how much you're willing to save for that objective. But if, if it's to move house twice during your working life, if it's to provide support for children in private education, then how much will that cost and how much that, does that need to be covered? And it could be that you then have to structure it so that other objectives are met first and you need to look then at what realistic pay increases are, in, are likely in the future to then sort of backload the overall plan. But that happens in the private sector a lot. So you know, very few people are able to save at 20, 30, 40, 50 what they need to, retire, to attain their capital value. So what you see is a lot of funding of pensions, maybe 40%, 50%, of pension funding occurs in the last decade of someone working. So it's not unusual for people to structure it, but maybe it's affordable for you to save uh, and cover everything off uh, and attain all of your objectives in between. But you need to think in that holistic sense. And so coming back to the original point, now that I hopefully I sort of fleshed out the sort of the things that are likely to be of, of interest to you as you're, as you're building, building your own financial plan, hopefully you can see how that becomes 10 times harder when there isn't any form of guaranteed income provided and how much harder that becomes when that loss of contribution from an employer is taken out of the equation as well, as would be the case if you opted out of the NHS pension. Trying to think through justifiable reasons why somebody might opt out, I said that if you knew your life expectancy was going to be shorter, that might be a reason to opt out. But actually, you didn't lose death in service, which would be very valuable to you your family and your family as well. So even in that example, do not opt out. But anybody who is considering opt out or has opted out should always take professional advice before doing so or if continuing to do so. Um, I hope that's helpful. And if you have any questions, then um, yeah, please drop me an email and I'll do my best to answer them. And you can find my email um, uh, on the website, buymecessel.com. That's it for this month. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could spare a few moments to rate, review or like us because this helps us get found by more people. And please send us your questions for the next episode by tweeting us at FP or emailing us at hello at barnabycecil.com. You can also find out more about us by going to barnabycecil.com and here you can also book a call if you'd like to discuss your own particular question in more detail. Thanks for listening.